Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So this, the selection of the disciples is described in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. They had been with him together as a group for some time, and now Jesus delegated some of his work to them. Uh, Jesus did not only call the twelve, he also gave them power to do what he had called them to do. The same principle holds true today. Whom God calls, God equips. The equipping may not be completely evident before the ministry begins, but it will be evident along the way. And Jesus didn't delegate the work without also delegating the power and authority to do that work. And the reader will need to observe one, that Luke mentions both demons and diseases, therefore he was either mistaken or demons and diseases are not the same. Or two, the treatment of these two was not the same. The demons were to be cast out and the diseases were to be healed. So to preach simply means to proclaim, to tell others in the sense of announcing news to them. The disciples were sent with the work of proclaiming that the kingdom of God was present and what the character of that kingdom was like. So their work of preaching might happen in open air settings such as street corners, marketplaces, could happen in synagogues as they found opportunity to speak. It might happen in small groups or one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, but the message was essentially the king has arrived. Jesus, the Messiah, is present. His kingdom is different from what we had expected. And he gathers a kingdom community of those who will repent and believe. And it's not too much to say that Jesus used the available, um, the available media of his day. They didn't have newspapers or podcasts or internet or any number of other media opportunities that we have today. Yet Jesus did use the media that was available to him and he used it well. So Jesus sent the disciples to do more than just present a message, but to also do good with supernatural empowering, to bless a whole person and to heal the sick, right? Verse 3 through 6, And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So, that it, so they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So the disciples didn't need sophisticated equipment to preach the simple message. Too many things would get in the way of the urgent message. And so traveling light also kept them dependent upon God. If they didn't take much with them, then they had to trust the Lord for everything. If the preacher himself doesn't trust God, how can he tell others to trust him? And uh, their job as preachers wasn't primarily to change people's minds. They were to persuasively present the message. But if their listeners didn't receive it, they would leave and shake the very dust from your feet as they left. <clears throat> and so if Jewish people of that time had to go in or through a Gentile city... As they left, they often shook the dust off their feet as a gesture saying, we don't want to take anything from this Gentile city with us, not even the dirt. Right? So essentially, Jesus told his disciples to regard a Jewish city that rejected their message as if it were a Gentile city. 
So they actually did what Jesus told them to do. They were preaching the gospel and healing everywhere with both the mission given to them by Jesus and the power and authority to fulfill that mission. Verse 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. So Herod said, John, I have beheaded. But who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. So there's no indication that Herod uh, Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, was a man of sincere spiritual interest. Yet he was interested in Jesus as a famous man, a miracle worker, and perhaps as a rival. So Herod absorbed the popular thinking about who Jesus was, like in chapter 9, verse 19. So some thought... Jesus was a herald of national repentance like John the Baptist. Some thought Jesus was a famous you know, worker of miracles like Elijah, um, whose return before the coming of the Messiah was promised in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Some thought Jesus was one of the old prophets, perhaps the one Moses promised would come. Um, the last time Luke wrote of John the Baptist, he was in prison and wondered if Jesus really was the Messiah in chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. Now we learn that Herod executed John in prison because John rebuked Herod about his sin with his brother's wife. So Herod wanted to see Jesus, but not as a sincere seeker. He either wanted to indulge idle curiosity or to do the same to Jesus as he had done to his cousin John. Luke noted this to emphasize the increasing danger surrounding the work of Jesus. Verse 10, And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them aside, he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. So when they left Jesus in verse 1, they're called disciples, that is, learners. When they came back after their preaching mission, they're called apostles. That is, those sent with authority and a message. They certainly remained disciples, but they knew both the message and the authority in a much better way after their work. So Jesus wanted to know what they had done, and Jesus is concerned with the results of our work for him. And Jesus did this, took them aside privately, um, to both serve and bless those to whom he delegated his work. Jesus has a special care to bless and serve those who serve him. Verse 11, But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who had a need of healing. So Jesus had gone to Bethsaida to bless and serve his disciples after their work for him. They could not keep the multitudes away for long, though. They followed him there also. So Jesus served the seeking, needy multitudes in three ways. He received them. This speaks of his attitude. He didn't run from the crowd or tell them to go away. Um, he received them. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. This speaks of his teaching, as was the emphasis of his work. Um, Jesus proclaimed a message to the multitudes. And he also healed those. Jesus did not only give them spiritual instruction, but he also did good among them with supernatural empowering. Verses 12 through 15. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country, and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves, of, five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. 
for there were about five thousand men. Then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of fifty. And they did so, and made them all sit down. So after this long day, the disciples saw the crowd as a brother, like Jesus. They came to Bethsaida to get away from the multitudes, not to serve them. Right? These crowds were like a bother to them. Um, and so to the disciples, this request must have sounded strange or even shocking. It was obvious to them that they did not have the resources to feed even a fraction of the multitude. With this statement, Jesus challenged both their faith and their compassion. Both Jesus and the disciples were aware of the great multitude and aware of their needs. Yet it was the compassion of Jesus in Matthew 14, verse 14, and his awareness of the power of God that led him to go about feeding the multitude. So the people are hungry, and atheists and skeptics try to convince them they're not hungry at all. People are hungry, and empty religionists will offer them some ceremony or empty words that can never satisfy. Or the religious showman gives them video and special lighting and cutting-edge music. Or an entertainer will give them loud, fast action, so loud and fast they don't have a moment to think. Uh, the people are hungry, and Jesus has the bread of life. And so he made them sit down in groups of 50. Jesus wanted them to do this work in an orderly, organized way. And he also wanted them to enjoy the meal. This command suggests that this was more than just putting food in their stomachs that could be done standing up. The idea that there was something like a banquet-like atmosphere of enjoyment here. Organizing them in groups of 50 also made it possible to much more easily count the multitude, giving more reliability to the number of about 5,000 men. Verse 16, 17. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and the twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. So Jesus took the little that they had, first mentioned in verse 13, and he thanked God for it. It would be easy to think that such a small amount of food was worthless to feed such a large crowd, but Jesus just used what he had at hand. In John's account, in chapter John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, we learn that these five loaves and two fish came from a young boy. The small amount of food they started with was borrowed from a young man who brought the food with him. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Verse 42 through 44, Elijah fed 100 men with some barley loaves and ears of grain, with some left over. The feeding of the 5,000 shows us that Jesus is greater than both Elijah and Moses, under whom a multitude was fed in the wilderness. So, when Jesus blessed before the meal, he wasn't blessing the food, he blessed God for supplying it. The idea of praying before a meal isn't to bless the food, it's to bless, that is to thank God for blessing us with that food. And so this miracle displayed Jesus' total authority over creation, yet he insisted on doing this miracle through the hands of the disciples. He could have done it directly, but he wanted to use the disciples. And so Jesus miraculously multiplied these loaves and fishes until far more than 5,000 were fed. Seemingly, the miracle happened in the hands of Jesus, not in the hands of the disciples. They simply distributed what Jesus had miraculously provided. So, if someone left hungry, it's either because they refused the bread from Jesus or because the apostles didn't distribute the bread to everyone. But Jesus supplied plenty for everybody. Verse 18 through 20. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who did the crowd say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? 
And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. So the scene begins with Jesus praying and the disciples joining him. We don't really know if they joined him in prayer or if they interrupted his time in prayer. Uh, when he was done praying, he asked him a question, Who do the crowd say that I am? Uh, he didn't ask this question because he was ignorant on this point and needed information from his disciples. He asked it because he was going to use this question to introduce a more important follow-up question. So, people who thought that Jesus was John the Baptist didn't know much about him because he and John worked at the same time. Both John and Elijah were national reformers who stood against the corrupt rulers of their day. And the similarity with the courage and righteousness of Jesus might have suggested the connection. And so it's fine for the disciples to know what the crowds thought of Jesus, but Jesus had to ask them as individuals what they believed about Jesus. And Jesus assumed that the disciples would have a different opinion of him than the crowds would. They didn't just receive the conventional wisdom or the popular opinion. They should know who Jesus was. And so Peter knew Jesus better than the crowds did. He knew that Jesus is the Christ of God, God's Messiah, the promised Redeemer from the Old Testament, the Messiah from the heart of God, not the Messiah from the desire of man. Verse 21 and 22. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So Jesus was pleased that his disciples were coming to know that he was in the truth, uh, but he still didn't want his identity popularly known before the proper time. The crowds couldn't understand that Jesus really was the Messiah, yet had to suffer. The disciples had to learn this first. So after hearing what the crowd thought of him, Jesus then told them what he had really come to do. Suffer, be rejected, be re you know, be killed, and raised on the third day. This wasn't what his disciples or crowds expected or wanted at all. And so he said, I have to suffer many things. And it's the important word here is must. This wasn't just a plan or an idea or a prediction. It's a fulfillment of what was planned before the world began for our salvation. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Revelation 13 verse 8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the resurrection was as much a must as any other aspect of his suffering. Jesus had to rise from the dead. Verse 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So it's bad enough for the disciples to hear that Jesus would suffer, be rejected, and die on a cross. Now he told them that they must do the same, or at least have the same intention. As Jesus spoke these words, everybody knew what Jesus meant. In the Roman world, before a man died on the cross, he had to carry his cross, or at least the horizontal beam of that cross, to the place of execution. So Jesus made deny himself equal with take up his cross. The two phrases express the same idea. The cross wasn't about self-promotion or self-affirmation. The person carrying a cross knew that they couldn't save themselves and that self was destined to die. Denying yourself means to live as an other-centered person. Jesus was the only person to do this perfectly, but we are to follow in his steps. And Jesus made it clear 
that he spoke spiritually uh, when he added the word daily. No one could be crucified literally every day. Daily could have the same attitude as Jesus had. Verse 24 through 27. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory, and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. So we must follow Jesus' way because it's the only way that we're ever going to find life. It sounds strange to say you'll never live until you walk to your death with Jesus, but that's the idea. You can't gain resurrection life without dying first. And it's a strong and sure promise of the afterlife. If there is no life after death, then what Jesus said makes no sense. There is no reward for either the dying martyr or the living martyr. Um... So avoiding the walk to death with Jesus means that we may gain the whole world and end up losing everything. Jesus himself had the opportunity to gain the whole world by worshiping Satan in Luke chapter 4 verse 5 through 8, uh, but found life and victory in obedience instead. And amazingly, the people who live this way before Jesus are the ones who are really genuinely happy, giving our lives to Jesus all the way. And living as an other-centered person does not take away from our own lives. It just adds to it. So it's not easy to walk death row with Jesus. It means that we have to associate ourselves with someone who was despised and executed. But if we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. And this is a radical call to personal allegiance to Jesus. He wanted to know if we would be ashamed of him or of his words. If Jesus were not God, this was an invitation to idolatry. Because he is God, this is a call to worship. Right? So, ashamed of me. So, it's, it's no wonder that some were ashamed of Jesus during the days of his earthly ministry. It's astounding that any would be ashamed of him today. Jesus revealed in the full glory of his sacrificial love revealed in the full power of his resurrected glory, ascended to heaven and honored, and Jesus loving and praying for his people from heaven. Who could be ashamed of that? Yet some are ashamed. The ashamed man believes, but you can't be ashamed of something you don't believe in. He believes, but he doesn't take satisfaction and confidence in his belief. Ashamed means that you don't want to be seen together in public, or you don't want to talk about him. Or that you want to avoid him when possible. Some are ashamed out of fear. Some out of social pressure. Some out of intellectual or some sort of cultural pride. Uh, such shame is a strange phenomenon indeed. So after this extreme call to follow Jesus unto death. He added a promise of significant glory. Jesus wanted them to know that it wasn't all suffering and death. The end of it all wasn't death. Verse 28 and 29. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. So what started as a mountaintop prayer meeting quickly changed into the shining forth of the glory of Jesus as he prayed. Um, and he was transformed right before the eyes of the disciples. So after carefully setting the context of prayer, Luke explains what happened to Jesus. 
he changed in his appearance in what has become known as the Transfiguration. Uh, white and glistening translates a word that has the idea of flashing like lightning. Jesus' entire appearance was transformed in a brilliant radiance of light. And Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun in Matthew 17, verse 2. And both Matthew and Mark used the word transfigured to describe what happened to Jesus. For this brief time, Jesus took on an appearance more appropriate for the king of glory than for a humble man. This is not a new miracle, but a temporary pause of an ongoing miracle. The real miracle was that Jesus, most of the time, could keep from displaying his glory. And so this was an important at this point in Jesus' ministry because he had just told his disciples that he would go all, you know, he would go the way of the cross and that they should follow him spiritually. It would have been easy for them to lose confidence in Jesus after such a seemingly defeatist statement, yet in his transfigured radiance, Jesus showed his glory as king over all God's kingdom. If they would listen, this would give great confidence to the disciples. Jesus knows what he's doing. He promised that he would suffer, die, and rise again, but he is still the king of glory. <clears throat> Verse 30 and 31. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Jesus was not alone in this display of glory. Two men also appeared with him, whom the disciples seemed to immediately recognize as Moses and Elijah. Uh, their immediate recognition of these men who appeared in glory without prior introduction kind of gives some evidence that we'll also be able to immediately recognize others in heaven. There, there won't be a need for name tags. Uh, they also seem to have a wonderful time together as they talked with him. Uh, possibly that transfiguration was an example of the way in which Adam and all of his race might have passed into heaven uh, and not death come upon us all through sin. So many wonder why it was these two particular men from the Old Testament, not two others. Why wasn't it, you know, Abraham or David or Joshua or Joseph or Daniel? It was Moses and Elijah. And it could be that because, you know, Moses and Elijah represents those who are caught up to God in, Luke, in uh, Jude, chapter, Jude 9 and 2 Kings 2 verse 11. Uh, Moses represents those who die and go to glory. Elijah represents those who are caught up to heaven without death as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. It can also be said that they represent the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. The sum of the Old Testament revelation came to meet with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. And so Moses and Elijah also figure together in prophecy because they're likely the witnesses found in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 13. All right, but uh, of all the things that they might have discussed, they chose this topic of his, you know, it seems that Moses and Elijah were interested in the outworking of God's plan through Jesus. So they spoke about what Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, right? Verse 32, but Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So it leads us to believe that Perhaps the disciples saw and heard only a small part of this meeting of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Perhaps it lasted much longer and they discussed many more things. It's remarkable to think that one might be in the presence of tremendous glory yet still be heavy with sleep. By analogy, we note that spiritual sleep keeps many from seeing or experiencing the glory of God. 
And uh, the glory was present all the time, yet they only saw it when they awakened. Awake, they saw his glory. Not even mentioning the glory of either Moses or Elijah. Uh, Compared to the glory of Jesus, it was like they weren't even there. And so in the mental conception that many have of this event, they imagine Jesus floating in the air with Moses and Elijah. Uh, Instead, the text will clearly say that they stood together. All right, verse 33 and 34. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Uh, And while he was still saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. So like many since, Peter made trouble for himself when he spoke, not knowing what he said. So Peter didn't want that scene of glory to kind of stop. And also, in suggesting three tabernacles, Peter made a mistake of putting Jesus on equal level with Moses and Elijah with one tabernacle for each of them. As Peter said this, they were overshadowed with the cloud of God's glory called in the Old Testament the Shekinah. It's the same idea of overshadow in Luke chapter 1 verse 35 when the glory of God came upon Mary and she received the child Jesus. Uh, Peter and the apostles at first felt it's good for us to be here, but as the glory intensified, it began to create in them a sense of awe and dread that sinners will feel in the presence of God. Verse 35 and 36. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. So the voice from the cloud of the glory made it clear that Jesus was not on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He is the beloved son, so hear him, right? Moses and Elijah were great men, and each had an important place in God's unfolding plan of the ages. Yet compared to Jesus the Messiah, to God the Son, they were insignificant. So all the focus and attention should be focused upon Jesus, None of these noble servants can compare to the beloved son, so hear him. So God made it impossible to focus on them uh, any longer. Jesus deserved all the focus here. So after it's all over, Peter, John, and James told nobody. After all, who would even believe them? So they told no one in those days, but they couldn't keep quiet about it because Peter clearly remembered and referred to this event in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. John probably referred to it in John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, and they remembered this powerful experience that showed Jesus in both his glory and singular role as Messiah, greater than even Moses and Elijah. And as impressive as this experience was, it in of itself did not change the lives of the disciples as much as being born again did. Being born again by the Spirit of God is the great miracle, the greatest display of the glory of God ever. Verse 37 through 40. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. And suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son. For he is my only child, and behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out, it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. 
So immediately after this radiant glory of transfiguration, Jesus and the disciples came down from the mountain, and they were met by demonic trouble and opposition. So the father felt rightly so that all Jesus had to do was look on his son, and the compassion of the Savior would, you know, would lead him to help this afflicted boy. And the description fits what we would call an epileptic seizure. In this case, Jesus knew, and it was demonstrated, that a demonic force brought it on, not merely physiological causes. So the disciples had previously had some success in casting out demons back in chapter 9, verse 1. It may be that this was a stronger or more stubborn case of demonic possession. And there are ranks of demonic powers covered in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And evidently, some demons are stronger, more stubborn, resistant than others. Matthew 17, verse 21, will say that uh, Jesus said that their failure was due to a lack of prayer and fasting. It's not that prayer and fasting make us worthier to cast out demons. The idea is that prayer and fasting draws closer to the heart of God and put us more in line with his power. So their failure was good for them, in fact, because it taught them not to get in the rut of mechanical ministry I taught them the great superiority of Jesus over them uh, to wish for the presence of Jesus and to come to Jesus with the problem. Verse 41 and 42. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. So there's a sense that Jesus was frustrated with his disciples. His season of ministry before the cross was coming to an end, and perhaps he felt frustration that the disciples didn't have more faith. So even when the father brought the boy to Jesus, at first he didn't seem to get better, but the problem showed themselves as bad as ever. This is the last desperate effort of the possessing demon to hold on to the boy and cast the father, disciples, and all into despair. So Jesus, not intimidated by this last display of demonic power, and Jesus delivered the demon-possessed boy instantly. Uh, what was too hard for the disciples was not hard for Jesus. Verse 43 and 45. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Jesus just revealed his glory in two spectacular ways, the transfiguration and the casting out of a difficult demon. Yet he reminded his disciples that his mission had not changed. He still had, you know, he had come to die on the cross for our sins. And the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they didn't understand that saying, so though they were frequent, the disciples forgot these reminders about Jesus' suffering and resurrection until after his resurrection in Luke 24, verses 6 through 8. All right, verse 46 through 48. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will, all will be great. 
So the disciples were often concerned about the question of greatness. They seemed to ask this question thinking that Jesus had already chosen one of them as the greatest uh, or as if they wanted Jesus to decide among them. We can imagine them arguing amongst themselves as which one was the greatest. So Jesus might have answered the question, who's the greatest, by pointing to himself. Instead, Jesus drew their attention to his nature by having them look at a little child as an example. And so he understood, you know, by more importantly, he understood the thought of their heart behind the conversation. He understood their motives and their impulses. Jesus pointed to a little child and did not point to Peter. If Peter really was to be um, regarded as the first pope in the way popes are regarded by Roman Catholic theology and history, uh, Jesus should have declared that Peter was the greatest among them, but he did not. He pointed to this child. And Jesus said that the child was a representation or reflection of himself, and that Jesus is a reflection of his Father in heaven. Using the child as an example, Jesus indirectly points to himself as the greatest in the kingdom. And so we know that one man was actually the greatest among them, uh, and among all, and that's Jesus Christ. And this means that Jesus himself was humble like a little child. He wasn't concerned about his own status. He didn't have to be the center of attention. He didn't deceive. He didn't have an intimidating presence. And we can contrast what the devil does with children, like in Luke um, in verse 39 here, and what Jesus does with children. So Jesus then challenged his followers to be the least. The desire to be praised and gain recognition should be foreign to a follower of Jesus. Jesus wants his followers to embrace least as a choice, allowing others to be preferred, and not because we are forced to be least. Verse 49 and 50. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. So this must have been frustrating to the disciples because it showed that other followers of Jesus were able to cast out demons when they sometimes were not able. In uh, verse 40, uh, no wonder John wanted them to stop, right? Uh, but Jesus taught them to have a more generous spirit. There are many that are wrong in some aspect of their presentation or teaching, yet they still set forth Jesus in some manner. So let God deal with them. Those who are not against a biblical Jesus are still on our side, at least in some way. Paul saw many men preaching Christ from many different motives. Some of them were evil motives, yet he could rejoice that Christ was being preached. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18, verse 51 through 53. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So this is the beginning of a new section of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to be received up. He would be received up to a higher elevation city of Jerusalem. He would be received up on a cross. He would be received up to heaven on a glorious ascension. So Jesus undertook this final journey towards Jerusalem with steadfastness, fitting the difficulty of the task ahead of him. So Isaiah 50 verse 7 will speak prophetically of the Messiah, the great servant, and it'll say, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. 
This is Jesus who steadfastly set his face, like a flint, as Isaiah wrote, going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. <clears throat> so because Jesus was going to Jerusalem, these particular Samaritans did not welcome Jesus. They didn't have good uh, relations with the Jews. They were prejudiced against them. We may also see this as the opposition, knowing or not, that comes the way of all who set their face steadfastly to do God's will. Verse 54 through 56. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So James and John, outraged by the poor reception Jesus received among the Samaritans, offered to destroy the city in a spectacular judgment for Jesus' sake. And it's interesting and perhaps amusing that James and John were so confident that they could do this, especially after their recent failure with the demon-possessed boy. Their angry reaction shows why Jesus sometimes called them um, sons of thunder in Mark chapter 3, verse 17. So their offense, even on the behalf of Jesus, was not appreciated. The determination of Jesus mentioned in the previous verses did not mean that he was tough or angry. They saw the flint face of Jesus and they thought it meant mean or tough. They didn't understand that it meant focused or being focused on love than ever before. That flint-like face will end up on the cross in the ultimate demonstration of love, not the ultimate demonstration of anger. So Jesus explained their failing at this point came in two ways. They didn't know themselves and they didn't know Jesus and his mission. He came to save the lost, not to burn them up with fire and, you know, from heaven. So following Jesus means being merciful to others instead of harsh with them. Especially, we should remember that God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In Romans 12, verse 19, verse 57 through 58. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have, uh, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So, with the miracles associated with the ministry of Jesus, following him might have seemed more glamorous than it really was. Jesus perhaps received many spontaneous offers like this. Um, so, Jesus didn't tell the man, no, you can't follow me, but he told him the truth without painting some glamorized version of what it was like to follow him. And this is the opposite of techniques used by many evangelists today. But Jesus wanted the man to know what it was really going to be like. Verse 59 through 60. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. So the man described in Luke 9, 57 and 58 here offered to follow Jesus. In contrast, Jesus asked this man to follow him. Actually, this man did not ask for permission to dig a grave for his deceased father. He wanted to remain in his father's house and care for him until the father died. This is obviously an indefinite period which could drag on and on. And so the man wanted to follow Jesus, but not just yet, right? There's still more things that he needed to do. So Jesus pressed the man to follow him now and clearly stated the principle that family obligations or any other obligation must not be put ahead of following Jesus. Jesus must come first. 
And Jesus was not afraid to discourage potential disciples. Unlike many modern evangelists today, he was interested more in quality than in quantity. In addition, Jesus was merely being honest. This is what it meant to follow him. He wanted people to know it at the beginning. Verse 61 and 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to them, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So the previous man offered to follow Jesus after an indefinite, perhaps long delay. This man offered to follow Jesus after a relatively short delay. Uh, Jesus stressed to this man the commitment necessary to follow him. One must have a similar determination as a farmer plowing a field, who must do it with all the strength and always looking forward. So more than anyone else, Jesus lived this. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. 